Amen. You could, you could run on that all week. Today we're going to return to our on-again, off-again study of Daniel. And that's how we're going to be studying Daniel. We'll interrupt our study for things like Christmas and Easter, etc., and then just come back to it. But I trust even though we've just started into chapter 2, that you've already discerned that even though this is an ancient story, it really is a timeless, up-to-the-minute guidebook for people called to keep their faith in an uncompromised fashion when they find themselves in a corrupt culture. Daniel and his friends remind us you can be relevant and engage with culture without relinquishing your faith and your morality. It's not an either-or. Now, as we've seen already, Daniel records the example of four Jewish teenage boys who maintained their devotion to God despite intense pressure to compromise. And examples are important because to fully grasp God's truth, we need to see it fleshed out in other people. That's when it ceases to be theory and becomes reality. To put that differently, we not only need to hear sermons, we need to see them. But as we've also seen, especially as we stepped into chapter 2, Daniel offers more than inspiring examples. Daniel offers inspired evidence of God's existence. Comes in the form of miraculous answers to prayer, but even more so as prophetic revelations of the future that were given to Daniel that could not have been known or explained apart from God. And that's important because given our culture's infatuation with pragmatism, we in the church often reduce godliness to formulas with predictable results. How to be, how to do, how to be. But the results are often disappointing because we've overlooked one very important fact. Instruction in how to live as a believer isn't effective until we're convinced it makes sense to believe. Now let me attempt to explain what I mean by an example. This is a football town. Imagine a linebacker being drilled day after day after day on his defensive assignments when he has serious doubts about the skills and the qualifications of the defensive coordinator who's coaching him. When the game is actually played, his doubts about his coach will definitely short-circuit his performance on the field. And in the same way, we can read all the how-to-be manuals we want, but if we're still entertaining serious doubts about the God thing and about the goodness of God and about the sovereignty of God, those doubts will short-circuit our ability to live for Christ. And make no mistake, living in a culture of pervasive secularism, moral relativism, resurgent atheism, and identity politics, the conviction of the majesty and sovereignty of God is continually under attack, and in many places, Christians are compromising. So if we take that conviction for granted, we may awaken one day and discover it's been gradually taken away. Now, two weeks ago, we saw that the king who required Daniel to learn Babylonian thought was about to learn God's thoughts, though he didn't know that. 
the progressive transformation that occurred with Nebuchadnezzar from a proud, essential atheist to a humbled believer in God started quietly with a dream planted in his mind by God. It was followed by a revelation given to Daniel that was subsequently shared with the king. And it was just round one in a series of encounters between a man who thought much too highly of himself and not highly enough of God. Today, as we step back into that story, I want to read the opening lines of Daniel's prayer and praise immediately after God revealed to him the king's dream. You've already read these words in our call to worship. Daniel 2, 20 and 21. Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. Today we're going to address a very important topic if you want to keep your faith and if you want to influence others. We're going to talk about speaking the language of God. Say that with me. Speaking the language of God. Let's talk to him first. Father, in these coming moments, by your spirit, enable me to do what I could never do on my own. By your spirit, enable us to do what we could never do on our own. Enable me to declare your truth. Enable us to understand it and apply it. We pray these things for the honor of Christ and in his great name. Amen and amen. And as we listen for God's voice to our hearts together today, may the Lord be with you. It should go without saying, but you knew I was going to say it anyhow. To be a follower of Jesus is to be incredibly blessed in so many ways, and not the least of which is the fact that God has delivered us from spiritual blindness and ignorance and intellectual bondage so that we can understand what's actually going on in the world and what the future holds. God has opened the eyes of our understanding. Scripture says the natural man can't understand the things of God. To him, they're foolishness. You have to have the Spirit of God dwelling in you through faith in order to understand what's really going down in this world. And believers have that privilege. And it's an awesome thing, an awesome thing to have accurate insight into who God is, into what God has said and is saying, into what God is up to in the world. Now notice I said accurate insight. Lots of folks who don't follow Jesus claim to have insight into who God is, what God has said, and what God is up to in the world. You hear that in statements like this, the God I believe in accepts everybody just as they are. Or, Jesus would never judge anyone and he's not the only way to God. Or, I know God is on our side. But those kind of statements examined in the life of Scripture are revealed as nothing more than the language of unbelief. They remind us that there is a huge difference between actually knowing God as he has revealed himself and assuming to know God 
and then making him in our own image so that he's a reflection of our morality, our politics, our likes, our agenda. Now, Daniel knew God. His life bore undeniable testimony to that fact. And Daniel knew the language of God. You can hear it in his prayer. A prayer that was voiced in response to God's revelation of the king's dream and its meaning. And that prayer, much like what we call the Lord's Prayer, has a great deal to offer us, beginning with Daniel's opening words. Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. Now, to fully appreciate those words, you must remember when they were spoken. They weren't spoken in a worship gathering like this. They were spoken by a man in exile at a time of imminent danger and great uncertainty. Yes, Daniel possessed the information the king wanted. He knew the dream. He knew the interpretation of the dream. But Daniel had no clue how that ticked off, unpredictable ruler would respond to the interpretation of the dream, especially given the fact that it indicated his empire had an expiration date. For all Daniel knew, Nebuchadnezzar would hear that word and immediately have him executed. So Daniel's opening words of praise illustrate when we don't know what lies ahead, we should affirm what we do know about God because it puts everything else in perspective. And that's what Daniel did. It's what the early church did in Acts 4 when it was also facing a life-threatening situation. And in both cases, it enabled God's people to keep their perspective and keep their faith. Now, the experiences of Daniel and his friends, the experiences of the early church, and my 40 years of pastoral observation affirm the opening lines of Psalm 1. No surprise there. The psalmist declared the most blessed and spiritually secure people are those who focus on God's character in their thoughts and in their speech, no matter what is unfolding around them. Their focus is on God's character. They consistently speak the language of God, and that puts everything else in a healthy perspective. Years ago, I read a Charlie Brown comic strip that illustrated this reality. In the opening frame, Charlie and Lucy are walking together, and it's just pouring. And Charlie looks at Lucy and says, it's been raining like this for four days without interruption. Do you think it's possible that God might destroy the earth again with water? And Lucy looks at him as Lucy always looked at Charlie, like, you pathetic, low-life human being. <laughs> and she says, Charlie, that would be impossible. Why, he said. Well, she said, God promised he would never do that again. And he gave us the rainbow as a symbol of that promise. You don't need to worry. Charlie says, thanks. That makes me feel a whole lot better. To which Lucy says, this is the part I like, good theology will do that. 
Yeah, good theology makes you feel a whole lot better in the uncertainties of life. And speaking the language of God is essential to maintaining good theology. Jesus' followers are frequently accused of making everything about God. And you know my response to that allegation? I wish it were true. I wish we really did make everything about God. But I suspect the reality is otherwise. As targets of unrelenting spiritual warfare in a media-obsessed culture, we can easily slip into thinking more like our secular neighbors than the saints who preceded us. Our minds can slowly be taken hostage. Our speech can easily be taken captive by the unrelenting clamor of the 24-hour news cycle and whatever is trending on social media. We can get caught up in the crisis of the moment, whether real or manufactured. We can get caught up in what's been called the tyranny of the urgent, all while we overlook the truly important. And if we aren't careful, we can find ourselves essentially thinking and speaking like the world thinks and speaks, only with a slight religious tint. And then when we do find ourselves referencing God, our references to God sound out of place, contrived, and sometimes even contradictory. We can forfeit the language of God, and when we do, we forfeit our joy, though we may sing of it, our hope, though we may pray for it, and our stability and our influence. See, Daniel's prayer teaches us that we often pray for changed circumstances when what we really need is a changed perspective. We don't need God to change what's going on around us. We need God to change how we view what's going on around us. We need to see things in light of who God is, what he has said, what he is saying, and what he's really up to in the world. We need to continually remind ourselves that wisdom and power belong to him. He knows what needs to be done, and he has the power to get it done. We need to tell ourselves he's bigger than any threat to our faith. He's bigger than any events unfolding in the world. He's bigger than any attacks against God's people. He's bigger than any economy. He's bigger than any unanswered questions in our minds. And the first step to establishing and maintaining that perspective is to intentionally, repeatedly speak of God's wisdom and God's power. Because just as our thinking influences our speech, our speech influences our thinking. Scripture says both. And that's another reason that corporate praise is so strategic. It's not the prelude to the teaching. It's vital to spiritual health because speaking the language of God in the community of faith positions us to be confident as we live in the community of humanity. There's no such thing as accidental spiritual maturity. The Christian writer A.W. Tozer said, saints aren't made overnight and they certainly aren't made in their sleep. 
If you want to be mature in your walk with God, you have to engage that with intentionality. And speaking the language of God in this corrupt culture doesn't happen without intentionality. Because ours has become a culture of rights and demands rather than a culture of humility and faith. And since life doesn't yield to our demands, we've set ourselves up to become a culture of victimization, complaint, and blame. And blame is the oldest sport known to humanity. It began with Adam and Eve, that woman you gave me. In such a climate, rather than bringing every thought captive to Christ, every thought, God's people can become prisoners, captives of their own feelings. Motivated by what we're feeling rather than what God has said about himself. Then we become spiritual hypochondriacs, constantly moaning about our problems and the people, them, who have supposedly caused those problems. When that happens, the congregation becomes little more than misdirected group therapy for self-absorbed people, and it produces minimal results. Or it becomes an endless series of creative religious entertainment aimed at distracting us from our frustrations for a few brief moments. And then we go out in the parking lot and our frustrations are waiting for us. And when those efforts fail to deliver the goods, we inevitably look for somebody to blame. Our spouse, our children, our parents, our boss, our employees, our neighbor, our political leaders, our church, our pastor, our growth group, the economy. Anybody will do, but somebody has to shoulder the blame. And then something tragic happens to our prayer life. Our prayers, when we offer them up, become litanies of complaint and doubt. We start with our Father, but what follows ends up sounding like the cries of abandoned children and spiritual orphans. We say our Father, and then act as if he's anything but a good, present, powerful, and loving Father. That's why we need to remind her of Daniel's prayer. It reminds us that our prayers should not depend on our circumstances. Our prayers should teach us to learn dependence upon God. Would you read that with me? Our prayers shouldn't depend upon our circumstances. Our prayers should teach us to learn dependence upon God. Karen and I recently bought a new bedroom dresser. That's not the point of the sermon. And when we were looking it over in the store, we discovered that it contained far more storage areas than what initially met the eye. The designers had ingeniously incorporated and hidden various places of storage in ways that we probably wouldn't have discovered unless the salesperson had shown them to us. Well, Daniel's prayer is much like that dresser, not in the sense that you'll find it at Value City Furniture, but in the sense that it contains so much more than what initially meets the eye. His simple opening reminds us that God never clamors for our attention like some insecure celebrity. 
God will allow us to pursue the clamor until we get sick of it and then discover how truly important he is. But he waits quietly for us to make that discovery. It reminds us that intentional words that capture God's character are essential to making that discovery. If you talk as if God is powerless in this world, you'll not be convinced of God's power. If you live as if there is absolutely no sense to be made of this world, then you will doubt God's wisdom and you'll struggle to keep your faith. Here's an important point. Daniel's prayer reminds us that the most successful, effective cultural engagement is engagement that glorifies God. He and his friends teach us that. Because remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, whatever you say, make sure it does what? It glorifies God. Now, glorify God, that term gets kicked around in church. A lot of people don't know what it means. To glorify God is to reveal him as he really is. Not as people want him to be, not as people think he is, but to reveal him as he truly is. When you're seeing God accurately, you're seeing his glory. When you're living and speaking in such a way that you're pointing toward people, toward God as he really is, you're glorifying God. Everything we're to do is to glorify God. Any attempt to be relevant in this culture that doesn't glorify God will not only prove to be ineffective, it will prove to be counterproductive. Now, I say that with passion because when I started in ministry, in most places the church had privatized its face. People acted as if all Jesus cared about was their speech and their morality and their sexuality and their finances. Uh, they were missing the whole social dimension of the gospel, being salt and light in a corrupt culture. Well, I was a voice among many saying we need to recapture that piece of the gospel. And I believe in, in America we have started to recapture it. But now I'm seeing the pendulum swing to the other extreme where it's all about address, addressing injustice, but without care of how we're addressing the injustice, and if we're being holy in the way we address the injustice, and if we're addressing the injustice in a way that glorifies God. And I read statements from fellow believers on social media that do not glorify God because they sound just as hateful, filled with sweeping denouncements, as any unbeliever. And I fail to see God being revealed or honored in that. And while they may feel they're doing something, I would challenge them and say, you are doing something. You're doing something negative. You're doing something contrary to the word of God. You've got the right idea, but the wrong application. And instead of making a difference, you're making a mess because zeal without knowledge is more dangerous than flat out ignorance. Because ignorant people do nothing. When you have zeal but not knowledge, you do bad things. I read Christians making sweeping statements about all Republicans are, all Democrats are. Do you really believe that's true? Are you that stupid? 
Everybody, all, really all. You've talked to every one of them. You know them personally. You know what they think. You know their motives. You know their passions. You know that. Wow, good to meet you, God. You've come in the flesh once more. And I don't care if you're saying all Republicans or all Democrats or all liberals or all conservatives. See, Christians are to make sweeping statements, but our sweeping statements ought to be, he holds all things together by the word of his power. He possesses all wisdom and all knowledge and all understanding. He has wisdom, he has power. Christians don't attempt to fix the world with the devil's tools or all you're going to do is make a greater mess for the devil. Amen. Grow up! Grow up! Be different! The people who have most changed the world are the people who contradict it the most, not the people who conform to it. You can't glorify God spewing hate. You can't glorify God acting like your stuff doesn't stink and that when God needs wisdom, he consults you. If you're tempted to say all and what follows isn't God, shut up! Because whatever follows has got to be unfortunate. Unworthy of a follower of Christ. We live in a culture that denounces hate and practices it with passion in the way they denounce it. Amen. And they don't see what they're doing. But shame on Christians if we don't see what we're doing. I've always said if you own a Bible and are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, there is a statute of limitations on ignorance. We often hear in this culture, words have consequences. Duh. How's come when God said that thousands of years ago, we ignored it? But I want you to know the words that have the most important consequences are not the words that voice disdain for earthly rulers. Those are cheap. They don't cost you anything. They really don't. Because if you go out and just disdain some ruler, I don't care what's your political affiliation. I don't care under which uh, administration. If you're out there just pumping out words of disdain for an earthly ruler, you'll always have people that cheer you and people that vilify you, but there will always be a large group of people that applaud you. So it doesn't take any guts. really doesn't. It, it's not boldness. You know what takes boldness? Speaking the name of Jesus in this culture. I found it ironic that the same Pittsburgh Jewish community that suffered horrific injustices just a week or two later when a Messianic Jew who had the audacity to believe in Jesus led in prayer at a gathering praying for the Jewish community of Pittsburgh, that Jewish community denounced him as not Jewish because he believed in Jesus. The folks who had just experienced hate 
voiced it. Based on what? Jesus. See, it takes guts to speak of Jesus. My dad used to always say any dead, anybody can go with the culture because any dead fish can float downstream. If you've got to swim against the culture, you've got to be alive. So whether you join the chorus that vilified Obama or have now joined the chorus that vilifies Trump, I'm here to say that doesn't take anything. I'm not impressed. It takes courage to speak the name of Jesus. Our most important words are not the ones that show disdain for earthly rulers, but devotion to the ruler of everything. Look, Daniel could have said lots of negative things about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a piece of work. <laughs> Paul, what could Paul have said about Nero? You talk about a piece of work. You talk about a sick. There were three in there. If, if you're ungodly, you can figure it out. And if you're so godly you can't, come and see me afterwards. What could he have said about a man who impaled Christians on stakes and set them afire to light up his garden parties? But do you read Nebuchadnezzar going, or Daniel going on and on about Nebuchadnezzar? Do you read Paul going on and on about Nero? No, but you do read them going on and on and on and on about God. That's why thousands of years relevant, those dudes are thousands of years later, those guys are relevant. Those guys are still making a difference. And God's looking for people to make a difference rather than just make a lot of noise. You won't change the world by becoming like it. And you won't draw the world to Jesus by speaking the world's language. You've got to speak the language of God. Christians, remember who we are. It's a mess out there, but don't lose your mind. Remember who we are. This isn't about administrations or parties. Every human party will be corrupt. Every human political system will be corrupt because it's populated with corrupt human beings. Our choices in elections is which flavor of corruption do we want? That's our choice. And please don't tell me, oh no, it's, it's between righteousness and ungodliness. That miracle, medical marijuana isn't doing you any good if you think that. <laughs> It's a choice between two different approaches to materialism, two different approaches to consumerism, two different approaches to empire building, two different approaches to economics, two different approaches to power, two different approaches to control. It's not about righteousness and unrighteousness. Please, please. Speak the language of God. There are, if you get off Facebook with your diatribes, somebody will fill in for you. <laughs> but if you aren't out there speaking the language of God, who's going to fill in for you? Hmm? 
Who's got to fill in for you? Daniel and his friends are just as relevant as tomorrow. They teach us to speak the language of God. Let's pray together. Father, it's so easy to get caught up in the world that we become like the world. And it shows itself in our speech because out of the well of the heart comes the bucket of speech. Our words reveal who we are. Lord, you didn't call us to be hateful, self-righteous judges with sweeping denouncements. You called us to be contrite, humble, righteous in Christ, humbly bearing witness to the eternal sovereign of the universe who is acting with all wisdom and all power. So Lord, help us where needed to wash our mouths with spiritual soap and return to what should be our native tongue, the language of God. Then we'll make a difference instead of just making noise. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.